Good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Uh, the, the concept of what it means to make a promise has, has fallen on hard times, hasn't it? And I suppose that's, that's due in large part because uh, the concept of, of promise has been, has been trivialized to such a great extent. Uh, politicians, some, some politicians uh, make promises only to later change the meaning of their words, thereby making all intelligent conversation impossible. Um, spouses uh, make promises only when the uh, grass appears greener on the other side. They forsake the covenant that they made before God and man. Parents make promises that they break. Uh, teachers make promises that they fail to fulfill. Uh, siblings do it. Friends do it. People break promises all the time. I, I think I'm convinced that's why in large part uh, God's promises don't carry the weight they should. Uh, the promises of God don't impact us to the extent they ought. It is simply because we, we, we look at how Man, generally speaking, has failed to keep his word, fails to keep promises, and subconsciously, consciously, we, dare I say it, transmit that to God. And so when we hear of the promises of God, these truths, what God says, don't, they don't strike the chord that they should deep within our hearts. And I think what we, what we really need today is a, when it comes to the promises of God, what we really need is a good dose of God. We need to hear afresh Moses' words, God. God is not a man that he should lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? We need a good dose of God. We need a good dose of God's immutability, his unchangeableness. We have sung of that already this morning, that he is the same from beginning to end. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever that there is nothing inside of God that causes him to change. Moreover, there is nothing that happens outside of God that impacts him or affects him or causes him to change in any way. He is a great I am, the same yesterday, this very moment, and forevermore. And because he is unchangeable, he is therefore faithful. God, dare I say it, can't help but be faithful. To be faithful is simply to be what he is. And because God is faithful, he keeps his promises. And last Sunday, we turned here to John chapter 14. And we spoke of several precious promises. 
A promise is given by the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I, I do hope you have reflected on these promises this past week. I do pray that the Spirit of God has, has taken them and touched our hearts with the weightiness of these promises. And that they have been meaningful to you. We find the first in verse 3 of John 14. Christ says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Christ promises to come again. We looked at a second promise in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So Christ promises, simply put, to do great works, accomplish great works through us, you and me, his people. And then we discover a third promise. In the next verse, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And so Christ promises to not only hear, but to answer our prayer. We're going to continue on the same theme this morning. In John chapter 14, we're going to pick up the narrative in verse 15, proceed all the way to verse 26. And the title for this sermon is very simple, The Promised Holy Spirit. And attached to Christ's promise to send the Holy Spirit are three specific promises Concerning the ministry of the Lord of, of the Holy Spirit among and within the people of Christ. Now, before we read the text and before we get to those promises, we need to take a moment and, and emphasize a truth that comes out in verses 16 and 17. A, a truth that is, is pivotal to our appreciation of these promises. And, and the truth is simply this. When we speak of the Holy Spirit, we are speaking of a person. We are not speaking of a force. May the force be with you or anything crazy like that. We are not talking about an energy. We are speaking of a person. That comes out in verses 16 and 17. It comes out clearly, firstly, in the fact that the Lord Jesus promises to send another helper. That is another helper, someone just like him. Someone who is a person, just as the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a person. It is not that Christ has ascended on high and sent forth this vague, impersonal force. He hasn't. He has sent another helper, another person just like him. And his personality, that is the personality or personhood of the Holy Spirit, is also seen in those two verses in the fact that when the personal pronoun he or him is used in reference to the Spirit, the term spirit in the Greek is neither masculine nor feminine, it is neuter. 
But when the personal pronoun is employed, it's not a neuter pronoun, it. It is a personal pronoun, masculine pronoun, he, him. He is a person. What do we know about this person? When we meet people, meet one another, we want to get to know one another through conversation. And we ask questions and we make polite small talk, getting to know one another. What do we know about this person named the Holy Spirit? I want to take you to three verses in John's Gospel account. We could go to so many different places, but just these three because they draw out something special concerning the personhood of the Holy Spirit. The first is found all the way back in chapter 1. And so turn back for a moment in your Bibles, in the book of John, to the very first chapter, and follow along as I read one single verse. The Lord Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. What do we read in verse 32? And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. It's the first truth I want us to grasp this morning, appreciate concerning this person, the Holy Spirit. He is like a dove. Now, there's a lot going on here in terms of biblical theology. Because there's a parallel here back to the dove that was released by Noah from the ark once the waters of God's judgment had subsided. So in terms of biblical theology, there's a lot going on here and there's a connection. But that's not a road we have time to go down this morning. What I want us to focus on is why is the Holy Spirit described as a dove? Why does he descend like a dove? Two reasons. The first is this, his purity. In the Old Testament, according to the sacrificial system, the dove was a clean, a pure animal. It was an acceptable sin offering on behalf of the Israelites. And just as a dove in Scripture is a, it points to purity, so too the Holy Spirit is pure. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself is recorded in Matthew's Gospel account. He tells His disciples, I'm sending you out among wolves. Here's how you are to act. You are to be as wise or cunning as serpents, and you are to be innocent like doves. There's the purity associated with the dove, the purity of the Holy Spirit. He is not merely the Spirit. He is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of holiness. But just as the dove is a symbol in Scripture of of purity, the dove is also a symbol of beauty. You go back and just give a casual reading to the book of Solomon, the Canticles. And there you will, you will, you will read of Solomon describing the object of his delight, his bride, his spouse. And on numerous occasions, he uses very figurative language. And I don't know how this would go over today. I've never tried this one with Allison, and I'm not sure it's ever going to make it into a Hallmark card. But there, there Solomon describes his bride saying that her eyes are like turtle doves. This symbol of, of beauty. And it must have worked for Solomon. I dare say it worked too well for Solomon. But there is this symbol here of beauty associated with the dove in terms of its flight, 
even in its creatureliness. And so, too, we see the beauty of the Holy Spirit as the third person of God triune, the one in whom we find all that is good, all that is true, all that is right. He descends like a dove, pointing to his purity and pointing to his beauty. Now skip ahead in John's gospel account, chapter 3, verse 8. And here the Lord Jesus is having quite the conversation with Nicodemus, a Pharisee. And they're speaking about the new birth and the gift of regeneration, this powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 8, Christ says, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Wind, Spirit, it's actually the same word in the Greek, in the original language. And so not only is the Holy Spirit like a dove, the Holy Spirit is like the wind. How? For starters, he's invisible. We don't see the wind. We can hear its effects. We see its effects. We see the long grass bent over by the wind. We see the limbs of the tree, the branches and twigs shaken by the wind. We see the dirt and the dust all stirred up by the wind. But the wind itself remains invisible. And so too, we can see the workings of the Spirit of God. We can see the impact of the Spirit of God. We can see something of His effects. Yet the Spirit Himself as God is invisible. Just as wind is invisible, so too the Spirit of God is invisible to our human eyes. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? The wind not only is invisible, but the wind is sovereign. The wind blows wherever it wants to. You can't control it. I can't control it. You can't cause it. I can't cause it. You can't stop it. I can't stop it. So too, similarly, likewise, the Spirit of God works incomprehensibly. The Spirit of God works mysteriously. And the Spirit of God works sovereignly. But there's more to it than that. It's not only that that the wind is invisible and the Spirit is invisible. It's not only that the wind is sovereign the Spirit is sovereign. But building on that, the wind is powerful. We know that living here in Texas. We look to the south, hurricanes to the south of us, tornadoes just to the north of us, and and at times even closer than that. And we see the wind in all its force and fury. And we see what a violent, rushing wind is capable of, the destruction that it can cause, The weight that the wind can lift when it unleashes its power. It's interesting to note that on the day of Pentecost, as the apostles and the women, the followers of Christ are gathered, the Spirit of God descends like a mighty, violent, rushing wind. He is powerful. There's a third passage of Scripture I want you to turn to. It's not only like a dove. He's not only like the wind, but turn with me now to John chapter 7. He is like water. There are other symbols of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. We don't have time to go down this road this morning. 
But you look for them on your own. Fire. Fire is an obvious one. Oil. Anointing oil is another. We only have time for these three this morning. And the third is found here in John 7. Verses 38 and 39. Christ speaking. Whoever believes in me as the scripture has said. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit. Whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. He's like a dove. He's like the wind. And he's like water. What does water do? Water quenches our thirst. Played frisbee with some of the young people, one or two older people, a couple Sundays ago, 95 degrees weather. And all I could think about was water. The thirst. And all that could quench that thirst was water. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person who quenches, satisfies our spiritual longing and thirst. But water has another function, doesn't it? We bathe with it. We shower with it. It removes the dirt and the grime and the smell and all that is filthy. And so too the Spirit has that cleansing property. He is a person who once he enters into the soul, cleanses and causes us to be born again and and makes us a new creature in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this person is like a dove. He's like wind. He's like water. He is a pure and beautiful person. He is an invisible, sovereign, and powerful person. He is a person who satisfies. And he is a person who cleanses. I want that to be in the forefront of our minds as we turn back now to John chapter 14. Because as as I said in the opening, the the promise or the promises, they just, I don't know, they, they lose, I said it, I'll say it again, they lose their weightiness. They lose the... The, 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 the impact, something is, is taken off the impact and the effect that they, they are designed to have upon us if we fail to understand of whom it is Christ speaks. He speaks of a person. Now, with that in mind, look for the promises as we begin to read in John 14, verse 15, all the way through to verse 26. Christ says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, 
How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so there we have it. The title for this sermon, The Promised Holy Spirit. Three promises attached to the Holy Spirit. Let me give them to you right here at the outset. No surprises. Number one, The Holy Spirit is a helper. Verses 16 and 17. Number two, the Holy Spirit is a witness. Verses 18 through 24. Number three, the Holy Spirit is a teacher. Verses 25 and 26. Let's take them in order, beginning with the first. The Holy Spirit is a helper. That isn't complicated at all. The Lord Jesus makes it clear. Verse 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Who is this helper? Even the spirit of truth. That phrase, another helper, is so precious. Why? Because in identifying the Holy Spirit as another helper, the Lord Jesus is implying what? That we actually have two helpers. We have these two helpers. The first helper is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We turn over to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, and we discover that the Lord Jesus is our helper. It's the same word, paraclete. He is our advocate with the Father in heaven. That's where he is helping us right now at this moment. You see, there are two essential components to Christ's priesthood. We often focus on the second and, and sort of minimize or even, dare I say, forget the second. The first, we focus on the first and forget the second. The first is this, that Christ as our priest has offered himself as a sacrifice for us. A, a living sacrifice, a fragrant sacrifice and offering to God. He has borne our sin. He has borne our judgment. That's the first part of his priestly office. But the second part of his priestly office is this. He's gone into heaven. Just like the priests in the Old Testament, they offered the sacrifice outside the holy place. Then they had to take the blood from that sacrifice into the holy place. And so there is sacrifice and there is intercession. There is sacrifice and there is prayer. That, those are the, the, the essential elements of Christ's priesthood. The first is accomplished at Calvary's cross. It's done. It's a historical fact. Praise God. But the second continues for all eternity. We have a helper in heaven. We have an intercessor. We have an advocate. Christ has entered into the most holy place beyond the veil into the presence of God Almighty with his shed blood and in presenting himself to the Father, he guarantees 100% the efficacy of his death at Calvary's cross. 
that it will, beyond any shadow of a doubt, be applied to every one of his own in fullness. You can bank on it. It is a guarantee. It is a certainty. He is our helper. The Holy Spirit is our helper. Christ is our helper with the Father in heaven. The Holy Spirit is our helper from the Father in us. And how we need this helper. This is the helper that the Lord Jesus has sent to aid us, to assist us, to guide us. Oh, it's a wondrous thought. When the Lord Jesus ascended, he didn't, he didn't leave some mere mementos. You know, we visit with family or friends and we'll leave them. You know, in Ontario, it's pretty popular to take some maple syrup, a little memento of our visit or a calendar or flowers or something like that. The Lord Jesus didn't leave any mementos. Nor did he leave, praise God, any relics. You go back into the medieval time period in the history of the church and oh, the frenzy over these relics and these monks and priests who would travel on foot for hundreds, thousands of years seeking a a piece of the cross or some of the virgin's milk or some of Christ's sweaty blood that someone apparently caught as it dripped from the cross. And these things were supposed to have some sort of intrinsic, inherent power and grace. Nothing but superstition. And, you know, we may look back on that and ridicule that sort of thing. But last year I was w- watching a televangelist who shall remain nameless. And here was this televangelist saying he had brought sand back from the Jordan. And he put this sand in little pouches, little bags attached to string. You send in your $50 and he'll send you this little rabbit's foot. It's superstition. Lord Jesus didn't leave any mementos. He didn't leave any relics. He left a helper. A person. The Holy Spirit. The paraclete. Helper. Comforter. Intercessor. And advocate. Now, friend, Christian, because this doesn't apply. If you're here this morning, you're not a believer. This does not apply to you. I'm not looking to start an argument with you, but that is the reality of the situation. Christian, if you're overcome with grief this very day, sorrow welling up in your soul, there is a person who is your helper. A person who is able to provide comfort unlike any earthly source of comfort. Or perhaps you're dealing with perplexity this morning, confusion, indecision. Don't know which way is up. There is a person who is your helper, who will guide you, who will lead you who will grant illumination, who will grant discernment, who will grant wisdom from on high. Perhaps you're here this morning, believer, and let's face it, past couple of months you've been living in a cesspool of sin. You need a helper. You need someone to draw nigh who will tell you like it is. Someone who will convict you of that sin. Someone who will show you the darkness of your heart. Someone who will bring you low before you can ever be lifted high. Well, there is a person, the Holy Spirit, 
who convicts the arrogant, who convicts the sinful. And it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. There is not a need under heaven that we as Christians encounter or face or stumble upon that the Spirit of God is not able to draw nigh and help us. That's the first promise. The Holy Spirit is. He is a helper. Second promise is this. The Holy Spirit is a witness. This really kicks in in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. Fatherless is the imagery. I will come to you. As we read on, I don't think the Lord Jesus has his second coming in view here, which is what he hasn't had in mind back in verse 3. He seems to be speaking of of something else. I think it's the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And in a sense, that is a coming of Christ. He comes with the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, I think again, I think it's the advent, the baptism of the Holy Spirit as, occur, as it occurs on the day of Pentecost. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That is the first glorious truth to which the Holy Spirit testifies or to which the Holy Spirit bears witness. It is this. We have a risen Savior. See, as those disciples saw the Lord Jesus ascend and as they waited there in Jerusalem for his promise to send the Holy Spirit, when that Holy Spirit descended, came upon them like a mighty, violent, rushing wind. And we have the historical baptism of the Holy Spirit. That was the sign. That was the proof. That was the historical witness. That was the testimony. That Christ sits where? At the right hand of God Almighty. And the proof is what? That he has sent forth. And the Father has sent forth the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit testifies to the fact that we have a risen Savior. Years ago, there was a Norwegian explorer. I'm going to butcher his name for you this morning. Roald Amundsen, I think was his name. And Amundsen, this Norwegian, made numerous visits to the North Pole. I think perhaps he was the first man, don't quote me on this, to the South Pole. But on one of his trips to the North Pole, he decided to take a a homing pigeon with him. And when he reached the North Pole, he released this pigeon. Well, you can imagine a couple of days later, his wife in some city in Norway as she opened the window of her house to behold this pigeon circling above, he's alive. My husband is alive. There's the sign. There's the pigeon testifying to the fact that he has made it, testifying to the fact that all is well. See, the Holy Spirit is a witness. He bears witness to the fact, Christian, that all is well. That the Lord Jesus is victorious. We don't serve a dead Savior. We serve a risen Savior, a Savior who has vanquished death and hell and the devil, a Savior who has conquered our sin, a Savior who is enthroned forevermore, rightfully so, at the right hand of the Father. But not only does he bear witness to the fact that we have a risen Savior, he bears witness to the fact that we have a life-giving Savior. 
That's tucked away there in verse 19. Last statement. Because I live, you also will live. So the Lord Jesus is saying, because I live, you will live spiritually. By virtue of my resurrection life, the life you live, you no longer live, but you live it in me. And the Spirit of God will cause you to be born again, spiritual life, fellowship with God. And so because I live, you have spiritual life. Because I live, you will have resurrection life. But just as I will conquer the grave and after three days will rise again, so too that is merely the first fruits of a coming future resurrection. When you too will be raised from the tomb, from the grave, from death itself. How do we know that? The Spirit of God bears witness. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that the Spirit of God is a pledge. You know what a pledge is. Sort of a down payment. Here you go. The rest is coming. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You think of that ancient practice of some Roman official or governor of writing some important letter and putting it in some sort of an envelope and then taking that hot wax and sealing the envelope, taking his signet ring and stamping his image in that wax so that the recipient may know from whom it has come. That's the imagery there in Ephesians 1, that our souls are like hot wax and God has imprinted his image upon us. The spirit of God. And here's the glorious truth. God never rejects his own image. He can't. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And this testifies, this bears witness to the fact that we have a life giving Savior. But thirdly, the Holy Spirit bears witness to the truth that we have a loving Savior. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. So glad Judas, not Iscariot, asked this question. Question that's running through my head. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Well, here's how the Lord Jesus manifests himself to his own. Verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home, our abode with The Holy Spirit and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our hearts, is a living testimony, a living witness to God's love for us. You see, there is an objective witness of God's love for us in Scripture. You know, we hear God say, I I love you. Well, that's an objective testimony. We take him at his word. But there is also, friends, a subjective witness of God's love for us. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5, 5. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This is mysterious. I can't explain this. But he whispers to the soul. He testifies to our hearts. 
that we are one with God and that we have entered into the fellowship of the triune God and that we are now the beneficiaries and recipients of divine love, the love of the Father, the love of the Son, and the love of the Holy Spirit. He bears witness. The third promise concerning the Holy Spirit. He is a teacher. Verses 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He's a teacher. In the context of this verse, I want us just to to look at that last phrase in verse 26. He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That is a primary application insofar as the disciples go. Because the disciples, joined by the Apostle Paul, constitute the apostles as an official designation as the foundation of the church. And there is running through these chapters this this evidence of apostolic authority being bestowed by Christ on his apostles, pointing to this pivotal role that the apostles will play in laying the foundation of the church in their writing and in their sanctioning of the New Testament canon that the Spirit of God will bring to remembrance all that I have told you. And with the writing of that New Testament canon, Joined with the existing Old Testament canon, we have God's truth. We have the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's going on here. I think there is secondly a promise for us. That in our learning of Scripture, in our studying of Scripture, and in our feeble understanding, and in our feeble memory, we have this tremendous promise that the Holy Spirit will be our teacher. And as we are diligent and as we apply ourselves to Scripture, we have this certainty that the Spirit will bring to our remembrance all that He says through Scripture as we need it in different life situations, as we encounter trials and tribulations, as we face temptation, that the Spirit will bring to remembrance and use this Scripture that we might persevere, we might stand in the day of trouble. But there's more than that. Flip over to chapter 15, where the Lord Jesus says something somewhat similar. Verse 26, John 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth. So he is the Spirit of truth, as the Father is the God of truth. Christ is the God of truth. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father He will bear witness about me. So not only does he bring things to remembrance, but he bears witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's an interesting question. How do you know you're in a spirit-filled church? How do we know we're in a spirit-filled church? It's not by all the talk of the Holy Spirit. It is by all the talk of Christ. Where the Spirit is working, where the Spirit is active, where the Spirit is teaching, His message is always, repeatedly, continually the same. Look 
to Christ. He bears witness of the Lord Jesus. He bears witness as to his person. He bears witness as to his work. And we have this this confident expectation that in our desire to grow in our relationship with Christ, in our desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that as we immerse ourselves in the word, the spirit of truth himself, this person will teach us and bear witness of Christ. Now look over just one other reference. Something similar again. Chapter 16. Verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority. But whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. And so in the first reference... We notice that he will bring truth to remembrance. In the second reference, we notice that he will bear witness of Christ or to Christ. And here we observe that the spirit of truth will guide us into all the truth. Where is that truth found? God's word is true. Go back. Peruse the history of the church. Go back all the way to a silly individual named Montanus who believed that the paraclete had descended upon him and that the paraclete had given him new revelations from on high. Revelations that outright contradicted the truth found in God's word. And the church concluded right away, what? This isn't the helper. This isn't the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth can't teach something that contradicts God's word. It's an inherent contradiction. It's not a work of God's spirit. It's the work of the devil. You trace the history of the church. And you consider where the church has has deviated and where it has left the track, so to speak. And time and time and time and time up to the present day, we discover what? Men and women claiming fresh insights, fresh revelations from the Spirit of God, which invariably contradict God's Word. You can bank on it. It is a certainty. This is an absolute. That is not the Spirit of God. He is the Spirit of truth. He cannot teach anything that contradicts God's truth. Impossible. Cannot happen. You think of those occasions... Dare I say it in our lives. When we begin to toy with sin. We begin to make decisions which we know in our heart of hearts, but we're often less than honest with ourselves. Decisions and choices and options that contradict God's word, that are flagrant violation of God's word, and yet we justify it. Oh, I think the Spirit is leading me. No, He's not. Oh, the young woman who comes or the young man who comes. I've heard it so many times. You know, I'm, I'm dating so-and-so or I'm about to get married to so-and-so. He, she isn't a believer. But you know, I love him. I love her. I, I think this love must be of God. I think this is an exception to every rule that's ever been written. And I think the Spirit of God is telling me this is okay. No, it isn't okay. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. If I believe something, 
think something, choose to do something that is a violation of what is revealed in God's word, I can be most certain the spirit is nowhere in sight. It might be the devil himself, or it might just be my own twisted imagination and my own sinful self trying to justify my own behavior, but let's call a spade a spade and call it what it is. It is not this wonderful person, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. He is a teacher, and he helps us to remember. He bears witness about Christ, and he guides us into all. The truth. That's the promised Holy Spirit. As I glance at my watch, let me not say as much as I was going to say by way of conclusion. Let me simply draw your mind's eye, your attention to a couple of verses that I skimmed over, and yet verses, phrases that really do merit our attention and consideration. The the first is, is verse 17. Where Christ says, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You aren't a Christian, perhaps, this morning. You aren't a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only thing to this point that I'm about to say that is of any relevance to you this morning. This is a description of you. That the world, the unbeliever, cannot receive the spirit of truth. Why? Because of his own spiritual darkness. It neither sees him nor knows him. Paul confirms it in 1 Corinthians 2. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly, silly, foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so, unbeliever, friend, you may cognitively be able to make some sense of what I've been saying this morning and what we find here in God's Word. You you, you might be able to make some logical sense of it. And yet it does not bear any weight upon the soul. It sort of gets stuck here and there are questions and uncertainties and mockings and ridiculing and, and other things. But please understand, the problem is not with God's Word. The problem is not with the Christian faith. The promise is not the problem is not with God or with the Holy Spirit, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. The problem is squarely on your shoulders. Your lost condition, your helpless estate, your darkened mind, your futile understanding, your hardened heart. And the starting point, as Scripture makes it so clear, is repentance, is it not? It is acknowledging sin. It is turning from sin. It is repenting of sin. And it is looking to the Savior. The Savior of sinners. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself. But for us believers here this morning, this is a, this this text and the promised Holy Spirit, it's like a double-edged sword. There really are two sharp edges on this sword. We, We felt the first, I hope, this morning. It brings comfort. The promised Holy Spirit. And yet it is also a, a tremendous challenge to us. Look at these phrases. Look at, all, look at first of all verse 15. The opening phrase. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Look at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. 
Look now at verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And finally, verse 24, in case you didn't get it the first three times, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. What is Christ saying? He is saying what he said. That there is an undeniable, indisputable mark of love. That when we know Christ and we believe in Christ and we love the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be obedience. And the truth we can derive from that, there are a couple. The first is this, obedience. Friends, obedience is the best test of love for Christ. It isn't how you're particularly feeling today. It isn't how busy you are or busy you aren't. The best test, the surest test of love for Christ is obedience. Where there is habitual disobedience, where there is conscious, willful disobedience, where there is ongoing stubbornness. I've used this phrase a fair bit this morning. I'll use it again. You can bank on it. I guarantee it, it's a certainty, there is little, if any, love for Christ. Oh, we must, how we must examine our hearts. Make sure we aren't playing church, right? Sort of playing Christianity. But where there is love, there is obedience. Because love wants to show itself in action. And that action will be hearing what Christ says and desiring to do what Christ says. And the second important truth we can derive from these verses is as follows. Disobedience. And disobedience is the surest impediment to enjoying Christ's promises. Disobedience is the surest, most certain impediment to enjoying Christ's promises. If I'm, if I'm moping along this morning and have been for some time, Dragging myself along the way. And joy is gone. And you know, as I take stock, the Holy Spirit, you know, He hasn't been much of a helper. There has been no comfort in times of sorrow. There is little conviction of sin. You know, the Holy Spirit hasn't borne witness. I don't get all that excited about a resurrected Christ. I don't get that excited about a life-giving Savior, and, and this, this love of God poured out in my heart. Oh, I had an inkling at one time, but now oh, no, it belongs to a bygone day. And the Holy Spirit, well, He's not really a teacher. I'm running on fuel, fumes, I'm running on emotion, running on my reason, basing everything on my experience, a law unto myself. Just dragging oneself along, not living in the fullness of these promises, not living in the joy that flows from the promised Holy Spirit. I will tell you why this morning. It is because there is disobedience in your life. There is sin that must be confessed. There is sin that must be forsaken. There is sin that must be turned from. And there is a loving Savior who must be sought. And where we seek that Savior, 
Oh, how this promise becomes real. And the Spirit becomes a helper. The Spirit becomes a witness. And the Spirit becomes a teacher. It all, let me try to sum it up in one phrase from J.C. Ryle. I haven't given you everything I wanted to give you this morning, but I trust it's enough. J.C. Ryle writes, I think this is a fitting conclusion. If we want to be eminently happy, who doesn't? If we want to be eminently happy, meaning basking in the promised Holy Spirit, we must strive to be eminently holy because it is our unholiness that quenches the Spirit. So may the Spirit of God impress that upon us. May this wonderful person, pure and beautiful, sovereign and invisible and powerful, this person who cleanses, this person who refreshes and satisfies, may we enjoy a time of refreshing this day. May He fill us. May He speak to us afresh from His Word. And may we delight in him as we ought. Our Father, we make that our simple prayer this day. We ask that you would have your way in our lives, in our minds, and in our hearts. We do pray for a day, a season, a time of refreshing from on high. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit. We pray that he would be that help who can comfort and guide and convict. We pray that he would be that witness who will testify to who you are and what you have done. And we will pray that he will be that spirit of truth, that teacher who will lead us in the ways of righteousness. And we do ask this in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.